how many of you know what it's like to move? You watch the sum of your earthly possessions reduced to a bunch of brown boxes in the back of a truck. You walk away from a place where you created a beautiful life for yourself with not so much as a few nail holes in the walls to remember your presence there. Then you cram yourself, your family, and everything you own into another set of white walls and you watch those boxes explode with an insurmountable mess. Moving is terrible. Over the last few months, a lot of significant people in my life have been moving. My best friend and I moved out of our tiny campus apartment filled with questionable stains and our laughter still echoing off the walls. I moved my husband and I out of our childhood homes just after we were married. I consolidated our belongings with care and consideration for the memories contained in each item. I visited my brother and sister-in-law just last week after a move and I listened to them proclaim they were not moving again for a long, long time. Their faces filled with the frustration of uprooting their lives. Although the stress and anxiety of renting a U-Haul, carefully dragging large pieces of fragile furniture upstairs and around corners, and not being able to find anything you need for months on end is enough to tell us that moving is a difficult experience. There's another piece of the transition that creates tension. Humans crave the ability to abide. We desire to create spaces with those we love most in which that love and relationship can be nurtured and safe. But being in transition interrupts any hope of achieving this easily. And yet in a life and a world filled with constantly moving parts, how can we ever hope to find the stillness we need to truly abide? When I was younger, my family had a beautiful dog named Brooke. Unfortunately, Brooke's adorable little doggy face uh, masked a little doggy brain filled with absolutely nothing. Um, she was really difficult to train. She was just always confused. There were no thoughts happening be behind those adorable little eyes. Um, but Brooke was also part husky and she needed a lot of exercise. But when we would take her for her daily walk, um, she would start to pull on the leash and not just pull, but like stagger forward at the very end of it until she was just gasping for air hardly able to breathe. It was terrible to watch. Um, everyone in our family tried different techniques and training to try to convince this poor dog to heal so that we didn't have to listen to her wheeze the whole way around the block. But she just couldn't help herself. The excitement of being outside and the distractions of other dogs, the exhilarating new smells, it pulled her in every direction except the one that brought her a breath of fresh air. The tension of all the things she wanted to do and see and smell prevented her from walking with us calmly, enjoying the exercise, the outdoors, from just being. As frustrated as I was with Brooke in those moments, I can't help but see myself in her frantic pulling. Jesus longs to walk beside us 
even in those most terrifying transitions and on our most chaotic days. He wants to give us that breath of fresh air, a moment, even if it's one singular second in which we stop pulling and start being with him. As Christians, I think we've created this narrative within our spiritual lives that we always need to be doing. We have a checklist, a certain number of prayers to be said each day, an amount of Bible chapters that need to be studied and read, a list of good deeds that constitute good behavior and acceptable behavior. These are all wonderful and beautiful ways to connect with our Savior that I found a lot of meaning in, but when they become something that stands in the way of our time with him, instead of something that leads us back to him, they're not functioning as they were meant to in our walk. In those times when the things that used to bring communion have become more like chores, that is when the practice of abiding becomes even more crucial than ever. So what does it mean to abide? John 15, verses 4 and 5 tell us, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Unless it abides in the vine. The branch does not think about how or why it grows from the vine. Its purpose was born with its existence. It is simply a part of the whole. It is a present and active participant in bearing the fruit of the vine. It gains its energy through a constant participation in the presence of the vine. Another way that I like to understand the concept of abiding is actually through legal terms. Um, so when two people are resolving a disagreement through a third party, that impartial mediator will often give the terms of resolution and then ask each person, will you abide by this? That question, will you abide by this? It's not asking, do you like this? Do you enjoy it? Does it sound good? Does it sound bad? What are you thinking about it? It's a deeper invitation to live by a certain standard. It's not necessarily a preference, although it can be, but it's a way of existence, a way of being. Let's return to the concept of, of abiding found in the process of moving and building a home, like we talked about earlier. Receiving the keys to a dwelling makes it your house, much the way receiving God into your heart makes God your God. But what turns that house into a home depends on the way that you exist within it. If you refuse to unpack, dwelling on only the necessities, denying yourself and your family any comforts, nobody will ever find a safe space to grow within those walls. But when you begin to make dents in the paint that mark your constant presence, when the house becomes a place of refuge from the peril outside its walls, when you can curl up in the living room and listen to the love unfold in the space that you've given it to flourish, that is when your house is your home. What makes God a God with whom you can abide is much the same. 
when your love and your laughter and your cries of anguish are given internally to him as much or more as they are given externally to others. When you find yourself closing your eyes just for a moment so that you can be with him and no one else, just for a few seconds. When Jesus is the first source of comfort you run to, the first to whom you give thanks in plenty and in little, the first you turn to in moments when you simply seek the stillness of being, that is when you have begun to abide. The idea of being content in God, regardless of our circumstances, is highlighted in Timothy chapter 6, which is our chapter for today. Verse 6 tells us, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. In this portion of his letter, Paul is contrasting the contentment of abiding with several of its opposites. And I do say several because I think the opposite of abiding is different for all of us, isn't it? So Paul lists a couple of things, some of these barriers, greed, arrogance, jealousy, slander, simply the refusal to allow Jesus' love to lead our actions. And after listing these struggles, all the things that come between us and the experience of communion and rest with our Savior, Paul says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. True godliness with contentment. True godliness, a character which it molds itself to the character of Christ, coupled with contentment, the peace that passes understanding. To be like Jesus and to be with Jesus, even when our sinful desires and our chaotic lives push us in the opposite direction, that is abiding. And so we abide, we set up house with God, we invite him into our small moments, we intertwine our being with his in deepest connection. The process of learning to abide is one that I believe can take a lifetime, one that I have only just begun myself. If you've been following along in our lesson this week, um, you'll remember we discussed the stages of development in our spiritual lives. And if you haven't been following along, no problem. I will happily fill the, the gaps. Um, so the four stages of faith development used to illustrate the process of abiding in our study are these. First, there's falling in love. This is a time of total infatuation with Jesus, great relational growth. Next is the rule stage. This is where black and white boundaries are formed in our relationship with Christ. Third is the chaos stage, and rightly so. This is a time of intense questioning and vast restructuring. It's a very difficult process, but it ends in the fourth stage, deep faith. Not because all our questions have been answered, but because God has been deemed a God who will make all things beautiful in his time, true, trustworthy, holy, able to handle the questions. It would be tempting, easy even, to assume that full abiding is only found in the final stage of deep faith, and that within the chaos, in the pushing of boundaries, admits infatuation, the stillness of the soul cannot be observed. But that is not true. 
The process of faith building is one that occurs over the course of a lifetime. I don't know that you ever truly arrive. It's a process that echoes itself. It sometimes restarts. It transpires repeatedly as Christ is revealed more and more to us through our lived experience. And I can tell you from experience that if we're not able to take refuge in our Savior during those times of difficulty that accompany navigating new spiritual breakthroughs and revolutions, we'll end up very depleted. The act of abiding is a God-ordained undertaking in which we find holistic healing regardless of the turmoil we experience. Whether we are immersed in spiritual battle, brought low in personal struggle, or disheartened by the world around us, Jesus waits for us in the secret place. I think abiding is often misconstrued as something that can only occur when we have achieved silence and rest in our lives, but it's the other way around. Abiding is the act that brings silence and rest into our lives through the Savior, regardless of our circumstances. There's a way that I like to visualize the concept of abiding that always brings me comfort. Um, So when I'm feeling alone or overwhelmed, any of those emotions I just don't feel equipped to handle on my own, I close my eyes for a second and I just imagine Jesus right behind me, standing there, watching my back, ready to defend me, telling me that even when it doesn't feel like it right now, I'm where I'm supposed to be because I'm following his will. Others have told me they like to imagine having Jesus in their pocket, so whenever they need a moment of peace or comfort, they just reach in and they remember that Jesus is closer than they know. There's so many ways to picture the manner that Christ abides with us, but the theme running through all of them is that he will always be there, no matter what. God is present in our joy and in our silence and in our pain. He is in the songs of praise and the wails of lament. He shares our spaces with us if we will have him, regardless of what that space may be. When we invite him into that space, we abide. And when we abide, we create a solidified identity around the presence of Christ in our lives, rather than basing our actions off reactions to our varied experiences. Our ability to reflect Christ's character comes from abiding consistently in his presence, absorbing little pieces of his love day after day, which over time form the pattern that guides the way we interact with God, with others, and with the world around us. Some of you may know that I recently graduated college, and one of my final requirements was to design a creative evangelistic series in which I needed to give my personal testimony. Um, And as I contemplated and compiled my collective experiences in a way that I could make tangible to others, I began to notice some patterns that brought a lot of meaning to the way that I understand my own experience with abiding. And I hope maybe it will be helpful for you too. You see, college was my chaos stage. I spent hours and days and months negotiating and reaching for God into what I felt at the time was pure emptiness. I had experienced the rapture of falling in love. I'd worked hard to create spiritual structure. But as I grew older and I began to experience the pain of transitioning into adulthood, I fell to pieces in my questioning. Even as I threw myself into memorizing the paths of Paul through the ancient Near East, studied Greek verb charts until I seriously thought my eyes would fall out, 
and invested in classes I hoped would lead me closer to Christ. The theories of revelation process and trinity and apologetics spun meaninglessly around in my mind without a solid relationship to ground them. I craved an infatuation with Jesus that I could no longer find. I dreamed of finding the cheat sheet that would answer my confusion with a structure that had long since crumbled. I buried myself in textbooks and conversations that led me nowhere. I cried alone. I wrote angry prayers in search of presents. I did everything but one thing. I did not invite. I did not truly ask God into the nest that I had created. I felt that the spiritual home in my heart was too cluttered and filled with frustration to welcome anyone, much less my savior. I asked God to fix me. I asked him to make it all go away. I asked him to restore some previous version of me that seemed better. But I did not allow him to reside with me in that dark place because I felt ashamed to be there. I couldn't imagine that my perfect God could squeeze himself in and simply be with me in the chaos. As I neared the end of my college experience, small spiritual improvements started to unfold in my life. And I slowly began to see that even in my confusion, God still seemed to be working. In my testimony for that senior project, I worded it this way. I began to notice small ways in which God had answered those prayers that seemed to have floated into empty space for four years. And as I began to see God's minuscule movements in the past, I began to mark them in the present as well. Slowly but surely, a recognition dawned on me that in those times I had felt completely alone, in which I believed God could only be found in the past or the future. He was, in fact, present moving in ways that I could not yet see. As I gained a fuller picture of how God had walked with me in the times that I assumed his absence, I saw all at once the opportunity that I had missed for so long. Jesus was there when I was broken. Jesus was there when I was questioning. Every time I had accused him of leaving me, he remained rooted. Every cry I uttered, he had listened. It was me who had pulled myself from his presence, unable to understand that abiding and brokenness can coexist in the Christian life. I want to be clear that I'm not saying that a good Christian can always feel close to God if they just try hard enough. That's not true at all. We all experience times of push and pull and ebb and flow in our spiritual lives. But abiding is not always about feeling. Sometimes it is simply acknowledging that even though we can't feel or see him, God is there. It's a choice to move forward under the assumption of future restoration and the confidence of being loved and redeemed in spite of feeling the total opposite. The author C.S. Lewis, a master of allegorical illustration, once tackled this concept of holding fast in times of spiritual numbness in his book, The Screwtape Letters. In this story, um, the evil angel Screwtape is writing letters to his evil angel nephew, Wormwood. He's providing guidance as he learns to corrupt the human soul. Pretty heavy stuff. Um, And in one of his most profound speeches regarding what makes true Christ followers impossible to turn, 
he explains the Christian characteristic which makes one impervious to the devil's designs. It says, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken, but still obeys. When we choose to believe in God's continued presence during times of drought, all the more will we see its evidence when we turn back and reflect in times of plenty. Abiding is the choice we make when we center on the deep roots of our faith, regardless of our circumstances. Sometimes it means focusing on that feeling of comfort, imagining Jesus right behind you or right in your pocket. Sometimes it means letting go of your need for perfection in your spiritual life and inviting God to share in the chaos. Sometimes it means choosing to act on faith and not by sight. But always, it's guided by our core principle for today. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. True godliness with contentment means acting upon the identity we have built in Christ, resting in the knowledge of his continued work in our lives, even when we cannot see it, and knowing that even under poor circumstances, we are richly blessed by the experiences of godliness and contentment. Understanding and practicing abiding for ourselves has unmeasurable and beautiful impact on our relationship with Christ. But if we are willing, it can be a blessing in the lives of those around us as well. Let's go back to that analogy from earlier, talking about um, learning to abide through the process of settling into a new home. Once you've made your home or your heart a place that you love to be, the next natural step is to invite those you love most to come share that space with you. You're excited. You want to show them how you've decorated. You want to make them as comfortable there in that space as you yourself have become. Because you know how beautiful it is to simply be there. You're so grounded in your trust. You're so filled with assurance based in fulfillment that you can't help but desire to share the experience of abiding with others. We know that the deeper a tree's roots, the greater its limbs spread above the ground. The deeper our faith, the greater our love. The deeper we abide in Christ, the further our hearts stretch out into the world around us to show his character and share that grounding. The godliness, the contentment, the great wealth that we found, it emanates from us wherever we go, not because we're consistently experiencing joy and ease, but because we're consistently experiencing and choosing to walk with Christ. Before we close today, I want to read to you Matthew 7, 24 through 27. This passage concludes Jesus' section of teachings known as the Sermon on the Mount. 
And this collection of instructions contains many concepts deemed central tenets of Christianity, things like the Beatitudes and the Golden Rule. And yet, Jesus chose to wrap up all these incredibly valuable pieces of wisdom with one simple illustration. The passage reads, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rains come in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the wind beats against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains come and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Today, let's commit to building a spiritual home on that rock, the rock of Jesus, one that will withstand the storms and the torrents and the winds, a home that we and him will abide in together, come sun or storm. And while we learn to cohabitate with Christ in our own lives, let's also work hand in hand to make our community here at Crosswalk Portland a place of abiding, a place of rest, a home away from home where our love finds basis in God's character and our peace comes from the knowledge that we are in safe and Christ-filled space, rooted in deep faith and communion with our Redeemer and with each other. Let's abide. Thank you for today, a day in which you have especially invited us to abide in you. We invite you into this space, into our lives, into our hearts and minds. Here in this room, there are struggles and joys, voiced and silent, and I pray that you would walk through all of them with us alike. Please make your presence.